A word of warning. This podcast may contain themes that some listeners might find distressing. Not always, but sometimes. However, this podcast will definitely contain strong language. Therefore, if neither of these things sound appealing, it's probably not the podcast for you then, is it? Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Narcissist Romance Podcast with me, the Narcissist Psychologist, where <laughs> today I'm going to be answering a community question. So um, a community question is a question that I will um, have received from uh, one of the followers on my Instagram page, because um, every once in a while uh, I run into a brick wall about what to talk about on this podcast and um, I then like to take some questions from my followers um, and if there's anything that I feel like I can answer is within the remits of my sort of knowledge or I can at least look into um, I'll answer that question um, and <laughs> today's question is a blunder um, honestly some of the questions I get uh, or firstly I've now uh, started asking the anonymous questions um, you know where I don't uh, it's not the usual uh, questions and answer box on Instagram where you can then kind of see who uh, replies or you can reply directly to that person. Um, I'm using one of those anonymous uh, question boxes. Um, I don't know why, but I think it maybe allows people to um, just ask some of the things that they might not necessarily want to ask about just because um, then, you know, if they do ask it, then I might know who they are, but whatever. Um, and some of the questions I've been asked on there are like, what do I think of birds? What's my favourite colour? Um, would I cheat on my significant other with a celebrity? Um, what kind of music do I listen to? And then we have today's question, um, which is, what is the best way to prevent people from becoming murderers? Which I think is a great question, but also <laughs> such a big fucking question. Um, so yeah, so I thought I would take a bit of a crack at answering that and um, see how it goes. So I've made a couple of notes, uh, which I'm just going to kind of read from and um, see if I see if I can answer this question of, you know, what is the best way to prevent people from becoming murderers? By the way, just, you know, this is <laughs> just my idea of how to, to answer this question. There may be other people in the world who have um, different views uh maybe those maybe they make more sense um than the answer i'm about to give uh which is fine um but sure um if you know of anybody else who may be asked who may be able to answer the question definitely go pose it to them and then compare it to mine the likelihood of any of you doing that is absolutely infinitesimal so i don't even know why i suggested it so what i'm going to do is i'm going to shut up now and i'm just going to answer the question okay so I guess to answer the question of how do how do we prevent people from becoming murderers, I guess we have to kind of think about what murder is, which, you know, I know that sounds obvious, but um, I guess a murder is a violent act. Um, and one would say that sort of, you know, it's a violent act that's sort of on the very extreme end of the various different violent acts that exist in the world. But um, at the same time, violence is a consequence of aggression so um in order to 
have this make sense. We're just going to sort of, um, I'm just going to take you through sort of like a couple of definitions of aggression and violence um, and think about the two and then think about some different, different types of uh, aggression that exist. So uh, from a paper that is called um, Aggression and Violence, Definitions and Distinctions, which is obviously a really helpful, <laughs> this is a really helpful paper, um, to answer this question or to think of, or to use in answering this question uh, so by the way any anything that i do use um, as a resource i will reference in the show notes to this podcast um but from that paper um aggression in social psychology uh, is most commonly defined as a behavior that is intended to harm another person who is motivated to avoid that harm so basically the idea that uh, is um is that aggression is about wanting to cause harm to somebody else uh, who for all intents and purposes doesn't want to be harmed um, and then violence uh, would then be an extreme form of aggression that has um, severe uh, severe physical harm as its goal um, so to take that definition slightly further um, I've got a definition from the historical clinical risk assessment um, which is called the ACR20 uh, which is kind of like the gold standard um, risk assessment that it's used that is used in forensic services or for you know in prisons and forensic settings to um kind of estimate or make a best guess about how risky somebody is um so the definition of violence uh within the acr20 uh, is defined as actual attempted or threatened physical harm of another person that constitutes a violation of explicit social norms so basically you know wanting to hurt people um, when society says that you shouldn't do this kind of thing to, to somebody. Um, so the paper then that I've just quoted um, goes on to say that like aggression, a behavior does not have to have, so a behavior does not have to cause actual harm for it to be classified as violent. So for example, attempting to fatally uh, wound someone with a knife but missing is still considered a violent act. So I guess, um, you know, um, also there's more, to, there's more to this part. So it says, uh, aggressive and violent behaviours are best conceptualised as being on a continuum of severity with relatively minor acts of aggression, so for example pushing, at the lower end of the spectrum and violence, so, you know, for example homicide and murder, at the high end of the spectrum. So therefore, all acts of violence um, are considered instances of aggression, but not not all acts of aggression are considered instances of violence. So there's another example that's given. Um, a child pushing, pushing another child uh, away from a favoured toy would be considered an aggressive, but not necessarily a violent act. Um, and a violent, uh, sorry, and an extreme act, such as attempted murder, however, would be considered both aggressive and violent, um, with violent, I guess, being the more descriptive term of that. Um, so, I guess, when we think about answering the question of what is the best way to prevent people from becoming murderers, I guess what we have to then think about is, I guess the bigger question is, how do we stop people from being aggressive because i guess um if aggress if, because of violence and you know murder being a violent act is sort of like the extreme end of um aggression in order to then kind of stop people getting to that type of 
uh, extreme end of, of, of violence. We kind of need to then sort of think about um, just reducing people's use of aggression overall. Um, but I guess to kind of discuss aggression a little bit more, you know, just in case you're interested, um, there's commonly three different types of aggression that are thought about sort of, you know, in the world of thinking about violence in terms of forensics. So in a paper called uh, Reactive Reactive and Proactive Aggression Amongst Children and Adolescents, um, a latent profile analysis and latent transition analysis. I don't really know what that means, um, but I just Googled reactive and proactive aggression and then found this paper and they seem to have two very good definitions of it. Um, I haven't read the whole paper, but again, as I said, it's linked if you want to listen. Um, so reactive aggression is conceptually based on what's known as the frustration-aggression hypothesis in the sense that um, aggression is born out of being frustrated. Um, And it's described as a retaliatory defensive response. Um, So basically people retaliate um, in defense of uh, a perceived threat, uh, a provocation or um, frustration accompanied out of feelings of anger. While on the other side... Well, it's not necessarily on the other side of the pole, but the other side, but the other type of aggression uh, that exists is what's known as um, instrumental, or more commonly or more recently known as proactive aggression. It was always known as either reactive or instrumental aggression when I was uh, learning about it. But anyway, um, proactive aggression uh, is based on the concept of, I guess, social learning theory and represents non-provoked, intentional, instrumental and offensive behaviour that is acquired or maintained through the reinforcement process. So basically, it's the use of aggression for a reason. So when we think about people who have been maybe slighted and want to retaliate um you know, not necessarily in a massive reactionary way, so not like in a very quick way, but sort of like in a very deliberate, considered, almost premeditated way, I think was probably a best way to describe it, um, or for the intention of trying to want to acquire something. So um, I guess sometimes um, things like robbery, um, so robbing somebody, uh, which is considered a violent act because it's interpersonal and there's, you know, there's the use of aggression, Um it's for like, you know, wanting to get uh, something from the person, I don't know, a watch, money, cash, um, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I guess there's something intentional and non-provoked about it. So it's not reactionary in the sense that something happened to somebody and that person then reacted. It was sort of out the blue, thought through. Um, and I guess when it says it's an offensive behavior, it's kind of a um, get them before they get me kind of mentality. Um and the idea is that this is, you know, where it says it's um, based on the concept of lo- social learning theory. It's the idea that somewhere along the line, people who use um, instrumental instrumental violence have seen that other people who use violence, um, it has like a, 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 a reinforcing consequence so people then kind of get what they want so uh, the use of violence has some kind of benefit um so you know so say for example um children who grow up with fathers okay not necessarily fathers that's being quite generally stereotypical but i guess you know growing up in a family environment where the parent or caregiver 
kind of uses violence in order to kind of maintain social status or redress um, some kind of social hierarchy or pretty much just get what they want. So if children see that um, then and then learn that, oh, actually, if I'm violent and aggressive to somebody else and I get those things, uh, I, you know, I can... Um, get what I want um, like I don't have to negotiate I don't have to ask politely I don't have to put in sort of the general things that um, the general sort of non-violent efforts um, that somebody else might uh, do uh, in order to acquire things they can just go and get stuff through violence uh, whatever those things might be uh, whatever those things might be um and then there's a third type of aggression, which I've only really ever heard of once. Um, and I think kind of potentially falls within the sort of instrumental proactive um, type of aggression, because I guess it, I guess there's a reinforcing element to it. And that's called appetitive aggression. Um, and this is, again, from another paper, which is in, I think it's like a book chapter, uh, which I found which is entitled Appetitive Aggression. Um, again, also linked in the show notes. Um, but aggression, th this type of aggression um, is noted to be driven by the pleasure of attacking and fighting. So the the reinforcement, for which, which is why I sort of wonder if it's part and parcel of instrumental or proactive aggression is because of this idea of there being some kind of positive gain from the use of violence um but the idea of appetitive aggression is the fact that it can be driven um sorry that the act of being aggressive and hurting somebody else is in some way pleasurable um or gives somebody some kind of sense of i don't know whatever enjoyment power pleasure um and then that sort of reinforces and uh, perpetuates that person's continued use of violence. Um, so one of the really interesting examples that is um, sort of spoken about in this book chapter that I found um, was the use uh, was um, of football hooliganism. So the idea of, um, you know, football hooligans being really loyal to their club, but then finding uh, great pleasure in meeting up before or after the match to kind of then, you know, barney it out with other sort of members of um fighting what are they technically called uh i mean i'm trying to remember from when i watched green street hooligans um crews squads oh it's not quite quite the right word uh but you know what i'm talking about so basically you know um supporters of one football team with, will meet with the supporters of another football I don't really know why I'm explaining football hooliganism you probably all know what the hell I'm talking about so anyway I'm going to stop trying to explain what the fuck it is um, but basically uh, football hooliganism um, is <laughs> one example where uh, people might um, embody this idea of appetitive aggression so like I said earlier murder, homicide um, is kind of like at the far end of the sort of aggression scale. Um, and I guess, you know, murder is a crime where there is some kind of intentional or premeditated um, 
or intention uh, to take somebody else's life. And I guess, you know, when we think about why someone might murder somebody else, I guess they could, those reasons could potentially straddle either the reactive or the instrumental and then, you know, potentially the appetitive um, uh, aggression, types of aggression. I suppose, you know, instrumental instrumental aggression is pretty self-explanatory. So, you know, somebody kills somebody else for a particular reason. So, you know, there's loads of whodunit mysteries out there where somebody was killed for a particular reason and then it was thought out, planned. Um, I guess a hitman is probably a really good example of somebody who murders instrumentally and for a reason. Um and for financial gain and things like that. Um, I guess the appetitive aggression would potentially be, I don't know, I suppose somebody like a serial killer who has some kind of um, intrinsic motivation for killing people um, in the way that they do. Um, Whereas, I guess, murders that occur in a reactive way might be somebody who... um, kill somebody in sort of self-defense now the difference between murder so i guess you know in self-defense cases it's i guess it's kind of a bit tricky and i'm not massively uh, i'm not a lawyer so i'm not um i'm not massively clued up about sort of the law side of things but from my understanding and please do sort of look this up um a little bit more um but manslaughter would be the fact that somebody if somebody reacts um in self-defense and kills somebody um but it was so i guess the intention wasn't to kill somebody and somebody ends up dead um then it might be manslaughter but even if somebody reacts to to you know to to an attack in self-defense but then kind of goes be you know but then they kind of they then intend to kill the person, even if it is in a um, act of uh, retaliation. That would then be murder. And I guess one of the one of the areas where this could potentially be thought about is um, uh, women who sort of kill their partners um, in self defence in incidents of um, prolonged and chronic sort of domestic abuse. So, um, whilst you know sometimes women may react violently towards their abusive partners um in self-defense um sometimes it can sort of move beyond defense into sort of wanting to then um kill and and murder the person um so i guess there are different yeah so i guess there are different types of there are different reasons as to why somebody might um murder somebody but I guess regardless of whether it's reactive, repetitive or instrumental, the the key underlying um, thing uh, or motivation or um, I can't, I don't really know the word, is aggression. So I guess, you know, I've, I said it earlier that if we want to, if we want to stop people from murdering other people, we need to then try and think about what we do about aggression in our society. So I guess we essentially need to kind of, you know, get rid of aggression, um, which um, 
you know, saying that out loud <laughs> sounds like quite a ridiculous thing. Like, you know, how do we get rid of aggression? Is that even possible? Um, and I suppose some of you listening might say, well, you know, being aggressive is part and parcel of human be- being a human being. It's part of human nature. Um, it's just what we do. Um, human beings have been aggressive for centuries, eons, whatever. There's world wars and all that kind of stuff. It's just part and parcel of being a human. Um, you know, human beings are hardwired to be aggressive. Um, and I guess this is what's called um, veneer theory. So it's this idea, um, which is coined by, um, a Dutch biologist called Franz de Waal. I've looked that up. Um, and actually all of this comes from everything that I'm about to say now comes from a really, really, really wonderful book that I've read last year. It's called Humankind, um, by Rutger Bregman. Um, and again, I'll sort of reference that in the show notes. And honestly, I highly suggest that you read this book because, um, as a forensic psychologist, it's just one of those really sort of um, affirming books that just goes, ah, you know, this is why I do what I do. Because the basic premise of the book is that this idea of veneer theory, which, like I said, was uh, coined by a Dutch biologist um, and I guess a primatologist, I think is what it's called. So he studied primates and stuff like that, um, is the idea that kind of like um, human, you know, um, human beings kind of keep it together through a veneer of civilization and that actually if you scratch the surface um and if any kind of stresses are placed on us as human beings um and you scratch the surface then this veneer of civility um can kind of be peeled away and that actually underneath underneath that veneer we're all self-serving survival of the fittest really selfish really sort of bestial savage savage uh beasts um and that actually the only reason we aren't these sort of really violent, continuously, perpetually aggressive human beings is because we've just created laws that kind of keep us in check. Um, you know, it's the whole story of the Lord of the Flies that um, those young boys went onto the island and because they weren't bound by um, the rules of society, they all became feral and, you know... Um, yeah, essentially violence and aggression and uh, death ensued. Um, but in the book, Humankind, um, one of the stories that Rodger Bregman writes about is um, the real Lord of the Flies, um, where I can't remember the details, but um, there was a, a real-life incident where some boys... I think I can't really remember, but they ended up on like an island by themselves. Um, And for all intents and purposes, their parents and loved ones essentially thought that these boys, um, they were going to find these boys and they were were going to have gone feral. But actually, when they found them, all the boys had learned to work together. Um, They'd pulled together. They'd really helped each other. They'd started to nurture each other and they'd really started to um, uh, take care of each other, sort of in stark contrast to... um, sort of what they what people thought was going to happen to these boys um so i guess and so i guess this the 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 book humankind is a sort of ode to trying to think about the fact that um as human beings our natural nature um is to not be aggressive but we obviously so but we obviously have become aggressive and um you know it kind of unpicks that and it goes through sort of like the whole history of being hunter gatherers and how um we um 
became um we went from sort of or how we existed with neanderthal man and then became sort of the more dominant um species uh, humanoid species um and how we survived which actually wasn't through um wiping out neanderthals i think it was more about i can't quite remember the details i read it about a year ago but i think it was something about how the fact that we came together socially um and looked after each other and cared for each other and developed cogn- and and obviously we had um far more superior cognitive skills so we could build tools and we learned to hibernate and created um i guess you know tools with which to survive whereas the neanderthal man didn't and i guess they kind of just died out because they couldn't adapt in the same way that we could um so it's not because we were more violent and aggressive than neanderthal man and kind of wiped them out in this really sort of um bloodthirsty way we actually just adapted and survived and outlived neanderthal man and i guess the whole book sort of explores this notion that um we are inherently good and our natural instinct is actually to care and to share and to live um as a community but kind of like our downfall was when we became civilized so when we kind of started to grow crops and started to um think about things as possessions and um are starting to own things like food and land and starting to barter um and that's actually when we started to um become possessive and when we became possessive that's when we started to well i guess you know want what other people had or were willing to kind of um uh, a take i guess take things that weren't ours um but actually deep down in our core um we are meant to be caring social beings that like to look after and nurture each other and share and i guess sort of you know one of the things to think about is that um you know babies generally don't start out to like you know when they're first born yes they cry and they are um they can shout and they can um get angry but i guess that's just because they sort of don't really know how to communicate and sort of regulate their emotions but actually all children are born caring empathetic playful um pleasure seeking um in like really nice cute ways and not these little sort of balls of aggression that just go around hurting people and all that kind of stuff um but it's actually sort of our society at large that kind of then teaches us as you know civilized human beings that being aggressive is part and parcel of our nature um so i guess it's kind of so you know i've waffled on about this a little bit but actually i've not necessarily explained it in the best way um but i would highly suggest that you read humankind um because it articulates what i've just tried to say um in a much better way um and i guess it's one of my favorite books that i read last year and is actually one of my favorite books that um i've read um i guess ever just because it's really hopeful i think it's called like human kind a hopeful history um and i guess it's yeah it points to the fact that we as human beings are far more far more civilized actually um than we currently are um but then i guess sort of the other thing to think about is so if getting rid of aggression is how we do it i guess we kind of need to then think about who were the main perpetrators of aggression and who do we kind of target and who do we kind of teach these lessons of 
um, aggressive aggressiveness is not inherent as you know it's not hardwired into us there's a different way of of being and acting in the world and I suppose you know this I guess this is one of the reasons why it's not really one of the reasons why I started this podcast or is it one of the reasons why I started this podcast I don't know but anyway one of the things I really like to talk about is sort of this idea of masculinity and um, you know the intersections between masculinity and violence and aggression and how actually masculinity teaches us the scripts of masculinity um or the traditional sort of sense of masculinity um and the rules that accompany masculinity kind of teach young men and boys uh, who then grow up to be sort of adult men um that actually violence and aggression is um inherent is part and parcel of being a man um and i guess the reason why i talk about this and the reason why i sort of bring it round to sort of thinking about men in relation to aggression is that um, in a global study by the World Health Organization in 2019, um, you know, the statistic I'm about to say is probably well known, but I just wanted to back it up with an actual sort of statistical uh, reference. Um, but this 2019 World Health Organization study found that 90% of all homicides recorded worldwide were committed by male perpetrators. So I guess, you know, to to bring it back to the original question of you know what is the west what is the best way to pre- prevent people from becoming murderers one of the first things would be to kind of highlight that actually you know if we're thinking about why people are murdered it's because it falls on a continuum of violence and aggression and actually if we want to prevent murders we need to try and think about the fact that actually as human beings aggression is not our predisposition it's actually something that through through sort of you know the creation of civilization which i guess we think about as part and parcel of human evolution which it is but because of that and because of how it's come about we kind of have made the assumption that this is actually our normal human nature when actually pre-civilized eras in in the pre-civilized era we in the sort of like the hunter-gatherer times which you know people love to bang on, on about in terms of like evolutionary biology and all that kind of stuff you know people there are people on the internet who talk about how aggression is a biologically predisposed thing that you know particularly men um is like in, encoded in our dna but actually if you go back further back then sort of um the dawn of civilization actually as hunter-gatherers um which is what this book humankind says hunter gatherers were all about sharing we're all about community we're all about sort of looking after each other um i'm not saying that there was probably never any any violence but i guess potentially the the level of violence that existed probably was nowhere near um what it is now um so therefore you know we need to kind of i guess reconceptualize the understanding of what the inherent nature of human beings is which is about community which is about sharing which is about nurturing which is about looking after one another rather than this this sort of like ugh, this doggy dog domineering dominating version of human society that we seem to have created for ourselves and then you know to take that one step further what we need to then try and think about is how we teach these this message to the 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 one half of the population that seems to be fed this idea that it is inherent in us to be aggressive and that's you know males and men we need to kind of so if we're going to reevaluate um 
human human existence um you know the the demographic that kind of really needs to receive this message is men because they're the ones who are committing most of the violent you know offenses and again this 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 is not to this is not about male bashing it's not about um saying that all men are bad i guess it's just about sort of thinking about the circular argument so um you know 90% of men commit all homicides if we want to reduce the amount of homicides and murders in the world we need to think about how do we stop that um and that would be about sort of think it rethinking aggression and if we're going to rethink aggression we need to rethink who we teach these scripts about aggression to um and that would be trying to sort of focus on rebranding masculinity, not even rebranding masculinity. That sounds like such a weird thing to say, such a silly, almost like, <laughs> I don't know, uh, I can't even think of the word, but it's not about rebranding masculinity, but it's about sort of, you know, teaching young men and boys a different message that actually we're not inherently aggressive. We don't have to be aggressive. We don't have to be dominant. We don't have to be domineering. Um we don't have to try and one up somebody else, but I guess you know, in a capitalistic neoliberal neoliberalist society, which is another layer to think about, um, it's kind of hard to to do that. Um, but I guess that's a that's an argument for another day. So another thing to think about, on top of all this, or maybe alongside this, um, as just another factor to consider. I guess is the link between trauma um, and aggression because I guess you know whilst it's understood that you know every person who experiences trauma or becomes traumatized doesn't necessarily go on to become a violent person uh, there is you know a strong link between uh, traumatic experiences and the perpetration of uh, violence and aggression I guess you know we only need to think about the offender population many of whom um, if we sort of look at their past history will have instances of some kind of traumatic or adversarial life I believe that there's research in the United Kingdom um, that suggests that um, individuals with four or more aces so an ace is what's called an adverse childhood experience and I think there's 10 of them and they include things like um neglect physical sexual uh neglect physical and sexual abuse having a divorced parent having a parent who has uh, mental health difficulties or illness having a parent who's been in prison having a parent who takes drugs so things like that um there's evidence to suggest that individuals who have uh, had four or more aces in their life are seven times more likely to perpetrate violence and that ace scores could account for at least 52% of violence perpetrated nationally throughout the United Kingdom. And I guess the idea is that, you know, probably all of us in our life have experienced ACEs, um, but the an increase in an ACE score has almost like a compound effect. Um, so one of the things that is spoken a lot about in terms of ACEs is sort of like the impact of, on one's physical health. But obviously, you know, there's evidence to suggest that adversarial life experiences trauma whatever you want to call it can can link to trauma i mean sorry can link to expressing aggression um and i guess you know there's it's considered what's 
called a mediating factor in the sense that there's a link and it's not necessarily correlational. So, um, sorry, I mean, it's not causal, it's actually correlational. Um, just because you experience a trauma doesn't mean that you necessarily go on to become aggressive and violent. There's obviously a load of various different things that kind of have to um, sort of almost fall like a domino effect or sort of like pieces in a particular puzzle in order for somebody to go from having experienced trauma to then being somebody who uses violence and aggression. But I guess thinking about the society in which we live in, um, or the societies that we live in. Um, I guess I've just finished reading The Myth of Normal by Gabor Mate, in which he talks about sort of the society, well, I guess the Western culture that we live in, predominantly is what he sort of writes about, and how there are various different, I guess, both sort of social, um, governmental, cultural ways in which uh, people can be traumatized so it sort of goes from the very kind of large macro level down right down to sort of the more interpersonal individualistic level and I, I suppose he talks a lot about trauma impacting on our physical well-being but also sort of our mental well-being but the idea is that there are a lot of things in life that can be potentially traumatic and I guess if we're thinking about the fact that there is a link between trauma and aggression I guess the the leap i suppose is maybe that if we live in a um environment or a, a culture or a world that is predisposed to sort of being quite traumatic and oppressive or you know causing us high levels of stress then that might also be sort of just naturally adding to our potentially aggressive ways of thinking being um and yeah so i guess Again, it's not necessarily that the world we live in fully makes us aggressive. It's not like as simple as that. But I guess thinking about the fact that there is a a link between experiences of trauma um, and and enacting aggression um, is probably definitely something that needs to be thought about. Needs to be held in mind. We need to kind of then potentially sort of you know going back to what I was saying around the 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 fact that we as human beings are innately meant to be well I guess more communally based more nurturing uh, more willing to share more willing to look after each other I guess you know if we went back to or I don't know if we somehow managed to embody those values or ways of living our life then we potentially may reduce the amount of adverse experiences that we have in life which then you know may ultimately kind of reduce the amount of um, aggression that is expressed in the world or by people or certain people um so yeah so that's something else to think about so yeah i don't know if that answers the question i hope it does um it's i try to think it through i try to come up with uh, some research to back it up um but hopefully that's been hopefully that answers the question um about how we might go about um preventing people from becoming murderers okay um if you've liked this episode and if you found any interest in it and if you can um and if you were able to withstand the waffle towards the end because i think i repeated myself about five times i think i said the same thing over and over again um which i tend to do uh so i apologize if that was the case um but if you thought that somebody else might find some benefit in it please do share the share the post i mean share the post share the podcast um please give it a rating um and if you're listening to this on apple Podcasts, please give me a um 
please leave a comment because it's just really nice to read but also just helps other people know whether this is a pile of shit or not um <laughs> so yeah um and as a final thing uh if there is a question that you want to ask me um please do you know please do send me a message on on instagram um you can find me at the nicest psychologist on instagram i think there's some dots or hyphens in my name i can't quite remember um or you can email me if you want so um my email address is the nicest psych all one word at gmail.com um but yeah please do get in touch do sort of say hi and um yeah I hope you have a great day. Uh, Take care, look after yourself, and I will chat to you soon. Bye for now.